0: Good morning. I'll be reading from from Genesis and then from the book of Matthew. Um, First, I'll be reading from Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 31, which is on page 2 in the Pew Bible in front of you, if you'd like to follow along. Then God said, I give every green plant for food and it was so I God saw all that he had made and it was very good and there was evening and there was morning the 6th day Next I'll be reading from Matthew chapter 25 verses 31 through 46 which is on page 1513
1: Hey everybody, welcome to the fourth week of Onward. The first week we talked about the kingdom, that Jesus is the king of a kingdom that we become a part of, and I'm not going to rehash all that right now. Secondly, that we exist in a culture, and the gospel of the kingdom is meant to impact and reach the culture and engage the culture around us. The third week, last week Pastor Lloyd talked about mission and what it looks like to be on the mission of engaging the culture without losing the gospel. And so this week we're talking about human dignity. That is to say the, the kingdom is not just a mission about leading people to Jesus so that they can be saved. It is that. But it's actually bringing the whole rule of Jesus and to bring together everything in its relationship with everything else. And one of the most fun, fundamental things that helps us understand the relationship of all things to each other is how God has created dignity in certain things, specifically in humans. And so, generally speaking, some people might just say, Um, The idea of human dignity is really easy Humans have dignity, people should recognize it Right? If they have a heartbeat And they can fog a mirror, they have dignity Be nice to them I had a med student tell me last hour, they're like That one's actually kind of spread out So that one's not going to have a lot of dignity for too much longer (laughs) Um, But it it would be great if it was really that simple If we all loved human dignity, really And that was really true And what do you think the world would be like if that was true? It seems pretty utterly ver- empirically verifiable that is not true. And what, what the Bible teaches us about our, our views and our feelings and our real longings related to human dignity is that we have a complicated relationship with human dignity. That is, we, lo- we long for it and we hate it. We long for human dignity and we hate human dignity. It's partly—you might think that's not true. It's because you don't have a complete view of human dignity. Um, in just before 1880, Mark Twain um, did a trip to Europe. He went through part of France and England, and he was really actually appalled by the way the poor were treated in the legal system of England at that time. It seemed like you could get arrested on the smallest suspicion, convicted on the most paltry evidence, and you could be con- punished for a, with a punishment entirely disproportionate to the crime. Because it seemed at that point that the British people Really valued order More than his idea they valued justice And so when he came back to America He published a book, The Prince and the Pauper I thought Dickens wrote The Prince and the Pauper But Twain wrote it And it was, a, it was essentially a protest book About the state of justice in England But p- part of the premise of the book is, is that there's Prince Edward And there's Thomas Canty Thomas Canty is the Pauper He's the poor guy, the bowers and dregs of poor London And there's Prince Edward, who is, as his name indicates, a prince, and they meet each other, and they look identical to each other. And part of the premise of the book is that they switch places. Now, it's not a particular wonder to us why Thomas Canty would want to be prince. That's, that's not logically hard, okay? Um, it's the same feeling we have every time something happens that is undignifying, and we're like, oh, I hate this. Why does it have to be this way? Why can't it be different? Right? So when we see a shooting in some place like Tulsa or Charlotte, and we're like, oh my gosh, does it have to be this way? Or, I don't know, you, yesterday, Saturday, 19 shootings in Chicago, the trip said this morning at 2 a.m. 19 just yesterday. And that's just people who got hit by bullets and went to hospitals. Okay? And you're like, are you kidding me? Right? The, the, Thomas Candy becoming prince, that's not difficult for us. We all long for dignity. We want people to recognize that we have dignity, and we want people to afford us that dignity, and we want to be in the position of somebody who receives dignity. So a poor kid becoming prince, not hard. Okay. Why does Prince Edward exactly want to become a pauper? Why does Jasmine want to leave the castle? Right? Yes, she wants more friends than Raja, but what's the real—what's the real—I mean, the real reason is the prince or the princess stands for the dignity of their people. Right? The entire reign of, of the present queen, right? It's like 67—I can't remember how—it's really long. Nobody can ever think of her doing an undignified public act, ever. Right? Because that's what it means to be queen. Every moment, every outfit you choose, every facial expression, every hand gesture, every word choice and intonation of that word, literally everything, 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 everything has meaning. It stands for the dignity of the people, right? And that is a backpack nobody wants to wear. That is way too much meaning, right? And so whether it's the Barbie movie, or whether it's Aladdin, or whether it's the Prince of the Pauper, there is a credible reason that all of us naturally accept when we read it in literature of why the prince would want to be a pauper. He's free. He's free of the responsibility of being prince. And that everything he does dictates the dignity of his people. He can run around, have a beer, kick a cat, whatever. Like, and it doesn't have an infinite amount of personal dignity reflected in it, Right? And you see, we, we are just like them. We, we want the benefit and not the liability of each position. Like Thomas Canty, we want the dignity of being prince because we don't want to experience the indignity of living in a broken world that's full of indignities, right? And like the prince, we want the freedom because we don't want to deal with the dignity of being prince, and here's the, here's the thing Jesus Is literally Exactly the opposite Do you know that? The savior we're imitating Is literally exactly The opposite He doesn't escape the indignity Escape the indignities of the world But he lives in them and embraces them And receives them Right As the perfect prince who entirely embodies the perfection of human dignity in all its modesty, in all its prudence, in all its virtue, without shirking the responsibility, but instead personally takes the responsibility for the whole nation and race of humans so as to save them? We, though we pay lip service to dignity, we want to receive its benefits and we want to escape its responsibilities. What would it mean if we really absolutely believed in God's divine dignity, the personal dignity he's given us as individuals, and that dignity he's put in all the other humans around us? What state would we live in every second of the day? Think about that for a second. If all of those dignities were related in perfect coordination and we were participating in them fully, what state would we be in? Right? We would be in a state of perfect virtue the state of perfect virtue. (laughs) And how—who of us is really gonna say, oh yeah, man, I just pursue that with white-hot passion every day, from the moment my feet hit the floor to the moment my eyes darken. That is the only pursuit of my life. And to whatever proportion, however long, in whatever context, we are not utterly given to the pursuit of perfect virtue. We are not pursuing the value of human dignity. And we aren't. We don't want to wear that backpack, but we want to receive the dignity that we want. And Jesus is the perfect example. Of perfected human dignity in the midst of the worst human indignity. And his life and death and resurrection is not only so that you can receive the dignity that you long for, it is also so that you can embody the dignity you were created for. He he, he died for you, and he offers you salvation in his spirit and is leading, in the mind of Christ, and all of these things, not only so you can receive the dignity that you long for, but so that you can embody the dignity you were created for. And if you believe that, then us believing in the gospel, the truth about Jesus, and us being a people centered on that truth, we are going to be a people that contend for and embody human dignity. We're going to believe in it. We're going to be gospel-centered people. We're going to contend for it in the culture. And when we come together as a family of God, we are going to embody it with an incredible amount of beauty. Okay? So, we we'll to look at three things related to being gospel-centered people, contending for, and embodying human dignity. The first thing is you have to believe it. You have to really believe that God and the gospel of Jesus, life, death, and resurrection, ascension, pouring out of his spirit, that all that points us towards the real foundation and grounding of human dignity. Now, um, there's this is on every page of the Bible, but I'm just going to hit a few things. Okay, so in the passage Rudika read in creation, it is very clear God says about the humans that He creates. Very specifically, He does something different than anything else. And he says, "Let's create humans in our image." both male and female, and he made them in his image and likeness. Okay, the only document in the ancient world that talks about human dignity with both genders present. It's the only document in the entire ancient world that does that. The and refers to all of humanity together. Most don't do that. Most refer to God making our people. The Bible doesn't start with Abraham, the first Jew. It starts with Adam, the first man. All nations are in its scope from the beginning to end, right? And if you understand that human dignity that people have, you can understand statements like in Matthew 25, where he says, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Because to the extent to which God's image is in a person, Jesus, the king, personally identifies with each individual human. He sees himself in them. And therefore, however we treat them, or however we are treated— He takes personally. Now, you can make a pretty good biblical argument that that actually is referring to Christians in that context. However, you don't know who who is a Christian, and you don't know who might become one. But on top of that, there are other passages in the Bible that make clear that this is literally true of everybody, whether they're a believer or not, like Proverbs 17 5. Right? Whoever mocks the poor insults his maker. Why? What are the poor good for? Right? They don't have any money. They're apparently not very effective people, right? They can't overcome whatever oppressive, right? We could get real, real bigoted, right? Real fast. And, and we'd all secretly believe half of it, right? But no matter what a poor person doesn't have, even if they're in the midst of raving schizophrenia, they still have one thing. They are a human being. It doesn't stop. It doesn't end. It's not mitigated in any sense. And therefore, they bear the divine image. And therefore, if you mock the poor and or any human, you mock God. Right? Doesn't matter if they're a believer or not in that context, does it? No, it doesn't. So secondly, it's not just in creation that we have—we bear the divine image. We also have a divine purpose. It's not just God says, you're in my image now. I don't know what. He says, now I have something for you to do. Okay, so he says, I want you to go into the earth and to fill it and subdue it, right? Fill it and subdue it, take dominion, right? Now, I'm not going to get into the metaphysics of creation, right? The structure of Genesis 1 is written by the biblical author to parallel in Exodus and Deuteronomy, the human work week. Because God gives his work to humans. That's the significance. God works six days. He creates the next workers on the sixth day. Then he rests on the seventh after he has handed off his work. Then he rests. He hands off his work to the humans. Think about it. What did he do? He made the world team with living things and he brought order to it, right? When Genesis 1 1 starts, there is a creation already. Why aren't we told about that? Why does Genesis 1 1 start with, in the beginning, the world was formless and void. The assumption is there's already a world. There may already be a universe. There could be all kinds of stuff. We have no idea how long it's been there. We have no idea how it got formless. We have no idea. All we know is there's already something. Why does the story start there? The story starts there because it is the beginning of God's work week. Because on day six, he's going to hand off the dignity of his work to the humans that he creates in his image. And so he's going to make the world teem with life. And he's going to order it, take dominion over it, organize it, bring out its creative potential, and rule it, right? That's what he does. He makes the world team with this and team with that and team with this. And he says, light, darkness, greater light, he moves things to where they go, right? And then day six, what does he do? He creates the humans and he says, listen, fill the earth and do stuff in it. Do what I've been doing. Separate it. Take dominion. Bring out its creative potential. Order it. Take the formlessness and voidness out of it and make it what it's supposed to be. You have everything that you need. You're created in my image. You're created with reason and creativity and ambition and compassion. You have everything that you need to do it. Now, you're spatially limited, so you're gonna have to make more humans so that there can be humans everywhere doing this. And don't just make any humans, make humans that grow up to be the kind of human that ex- embraces this mandate and believes in me. But make humans to spread this work out and do the work yourself. It's yours. And then in Exodus and Deuteronomy, you get the command, six days you work, one day you rest, and everything rests, even your animals. Because that's what I did, God says. That is, every single person has a purpose. You have a purpose, and that is to be part of, if you're—if you end up in the the calling of marriage, producing more humans, right? If you're you're able to, not just any, the right kind, (laughs) right? The Bible says that God didn't want just more humans. It says in Malachi that he wanted godly offspring, right? He wants offspring that believe and trust, know him. And if you don't have children, you can still be part of that, because a lot of us who have offspring are having trouble making them the godly kind. If there so any input you could have that would move them in that direction, that'd be fantastic. Okay? Because that's what we're trying to produce. And In that sense, we're doing it together as a church, right? That's why we have child dedications, right? But what that means is this. If you are a maid, or if you are the director of macro-financial policy for the World Bank, You're still, you're doing the same job. Do you understand that? You're doing the same job. You're taking dominion. You're taking dominion from the grime and the dirt and the mold, right? You're taking dominion. And if you're doing something really complicated that you had to get a degree with letters and periods, you're still just taking dominion. Everybody's just taking dominion. And making more dominion takers, hopefully the right kind. That's all we're doing, all of us. None of us are doing anything but that if we're doing something in God's will. But what it also means is when you're taking dominion from the grime and the mold and the whatever, if you're treating somebody, if you're setting financial policy, you're doing your purpose. Which is why even a very godly believer is going to have a little bit of an identity crisis when they lose their job. It's one of the reasons why unemployment, for example, by that I don't mean laziness. I, be, I, I mean people who are willing to work and can't find work. Why that is as spirit—it truly is a spiritual issue because human beings were made spiritually to be workers. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to be remunerated for your work. In any way that you create new dominion takers or you help take dominion, paid or not, in any situation, you are employing yourself in your divine purpose. So if you're homeless and you walk around and pick up trash down by the Capitol, you are employing yourself in a divine purpose of taking dominion. And if that's why you do it, you're walking in your divine purpose, okay? Anybody who is finding it, so you can be unemployed and you can still employ yourself until you find employment. Does that make sense? It's also why people who own businesses and help create new jobs for people to take so they can be employed in something that trades with other people and makes other people's lives better. That's a fundamental good. As good as anybody who runs a nonprofit. Because we were created to be employed and to employ ourselves and to employ each other and to be part of taking dominion of all things in the earth and bringing good order to all things. Does that make sense? And then lastly, do you see that in the Bible that It is not just that Jesus is our inheritance or that gives us one. It says that. The Bible says that in a number of places. That when we come to Jesus, we belong to God, and he is our greater father. And in that, we receive an inheritance, and it is amazing. But you know, there's a number of places in the Bible that says the reverse is true. The the Bible says that you are the gift he's giving himself for eternity. Do you realize that? It says at least three times in the Old Testament, twice in Deuteronomy and once in Psalms, that God's people are his inheritance in the earth. It says in Colossians that not only was everything created by Jesus, it was created, what? For Jesus. Ephesians 1, in in the early verses, it says that Jesus is our great inheritance. But then just a few verses later, in verse 18, it says we are his inheritance very rich and glorious inheritance that he has in the saints. Meaning not that he gives us a very great and glorious one. The apostle is saying, yes, Jesus has given us a gift of an inheritance. But we are also the gift he is eternally giving himself. We are his very rich and glorious inheritance. Inheritance. Think about that. His people are so dignified that he is—that we are the gift he gives himself. Now, a couple—a few implications for this that we have to look at. Um, One, what that means is the Bible teaches that human dignity is the same for all people, Christian or not. It's not only equal— but it is a great dignity, and it's true for all people. Now, I know you've been told at university and stuff that religions are just ways people say, we have dignity, and those people don't have dignity. It turns out it has very little to do with religion other than that religion is a useful tool for doing that. It turns out that human beings are constantly using everything in their life to narrow the circle of responsibility to make their life easier so they don't have to bear the weight of human dignity. And they do it with institutions. They do it with relationships, they do it with belongings, they do it with faiths, philosophies, they do it with everything. Religions are really useful for that because you can put a God stamp on your rejection of other people's humanity. But in no way is our religious faith normally that. But if we look at how God has spoken and shown himself in the Word of God written, it is very clear that. Every human person, from Adam to the end, without exception, believer or unbeliever, has the God-given, unretractable gift of human dignity, which is bound up in the image of God. Secondly, is that what makes us special is what we share and how we utilize that gift, not what makes us different. So one example of this is I'm always kind of surprised, and it's probably my fault— Partly and partly everybody's fault how, how Christians really misunderstand the Christian doctrine of modesty Right? You getting nervous yet? Right? Because when we, the minute I say modesty, what half the people think is Oh, he's gonna say pants aren't, tights aren't pants And tights aren't pants <laughs> I mean, they aren't, but that's not the point The point is, is that modesty is about being an ally and other humans embodying their human dignity and therefore not dragging them towards something undignified, like lust, and not elevating ourselves in status by something that is not a kingdom value. Those are the two dynamics of modesty. I orient myself towards my neighbor in a way that I I support them in living out their human dignity, and do not attempt to draw them to something undignified, and I don't attempt to elevate myself on something that's not a kingdom value, and therefore I don't elevate myself in a way that draws my neighbor to elevate me in their own mind on something that's a lie. And so demonstrating how much money you have in the jewelry you wear to church, is the same thing as showing cleavage. Same thing. Anything that says, an attribute of mine should elevate me in the status of your mind that isn't that I'm created in God's image and that I'm employing that universal gift in virtue. That's it. That's all we care about at church. That's all that's important to us. What you are, and how what you are is flowering and what it's meant to be in the kingdom. That's it. That's it. Don't care if you have three legs. And so I don't care. I don't care. And so if you've got a great butt, you, you shouldn't show it off with whatever you want to wear. Right? If you've got like killer muscles because you do a lot of curls and you're like a dude, you leave the tight t-shirt at home. Why? don't tempt me to respect you because you've got guns. You're attempting to deform my view of the world. Because they don't matter. What matters is you're made in the divine image, and is that divine image flowering in virtue through faith? Are you growing in the mind of Christ, walking in step with the Spirit, embracing virtue so you can live fully in the freedom of Christ, and pouring yourself out sacrificially for the love of your neighbor? That's it! That's it. I don't care what car you drive. I don't care what you wear. And you shouldn't make me care. You shouldn't do things to tempt me to care. Do you understand? And so, yeah, that has to do with what women wear. It has to do with how we dress. It has to do with me using multisyllabic words because I want you to think I'm really smart. Who cares? Smartness is irrelevant in the kingdom. What matters is faithfulness. That's it. Right, and so anything we do to draw our brother away from that, or our sister, to regard us in some way, either the garnering of attention or the raising of our status, or anything related to that, to get them off of what matters is the dignity that I have simply as a human being, and that dignity flowering through faith into virtue. Does that make sense? So, when you dress, and when you buy your next car, and when you decide what jewelry you're going to wear, and what you decide how long you're going to listen before you interrupt somebody, or whether this is the appropriate time for a joke, and whether that brings attention to you rather than the other person. So, like, think about this. When was the last time somebody was saying something that they thought? And then, right when they were done, you were like, yes, and even more. Blah, 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 blah. What did you just do? You pulled all the attention out of what they just said, and the consideration of it, onto the thing you just said. Now, that's, I'm, I'm safe doing that one because I do that like nine times a day at least. Do you see what just happened? That's immodesty. Why is it immodesty? Because I drew the attention on the thought that just occurred to me that I presume to state to the people listening is more important than the thing that he just said. And so I'm going to piggyback off his momentum, pull it onto myself, and use it as a voice piece for me doesn't have anything to do with tights, does it? But that's what immodesty is. It is to not have deference for the dignity of your neighbor and to seek to raise your own status or gain attention or whatever on something other than the fact that you have the same thing. Everybody else has human dignity. If you want to get attention, great. Do you know what First Peter said? The great women of old adorned themselves with godliness. Not hairdos. If you want to be great, if you want attention, awesome. Display real humility, real godliness, real self-sacrificial care. Listen to others and don't interrupt them. Speak so as to be understood, not as to be thought intelligent. I mean— display modesty in all of its facets, and you will be thought great by those who value reality well. And we have to swim upstream against such a fast river on this in our culture, don't we? But things that swim upstream do stand out. Three, there is no other human justification for human dignity that has been as powerful as it's the grounding of human dignity in the gospel. Be careful to think that all, there's, all, there's other philosophies that'll make this work. Um, actually, part of the beauty of the gospel is there isn't. There are other philosophies that are coherent. They fit themselves. But they don't ground obligation in us. You can believe in Rawls and Kant and be like, well, whatever you you think other people should do, you should do a categorical imperative. Yeah, but you could believe that, but that doesn't create an obligation for me or an oughtness. But when the person who created me and created me for something says, look, you're gonna do what I made you for. I created you. I have the right to tell you what you're gonna be doing. And if you don't do it, that is treasonous, and I will act as king. You will respect the dignity of my creation and my creatures. Now go and do the work that I made for you to do. And through faith, I will provide a way for you to be forgiven when you fail, and I will lead you on. But listen, part of the reason why people believe other ways of believing in human dignity can work is is not because they don't think or whatever. It's because our culture has such a narrow view of human, of what a human is. It's so scientistically narrow. We're just like brains firing off. And there's a complete loss of the humanities in our understanding of human beings. And so we we just don't see the avarice and the hatred and the— I mean, every time I hear people say, if we would just stop and listen and get to know each other, we would like each other and get along. That is not true. The more people get to know each other, oftentimes the more they dislike each other. You sit down with a Jew in Palestine, and you say, like, do you not know each other? What do the other person thinks? No, they know exactly what each other thinks, and they're still trying to kill each other. The idea that education and understanding will produce some great human harmony is a fabrication of the highest order, and it is a misunderstanding of human nature. We are created in the divine image, and we wield it through a broken, self-centered Self-loving, God-hating fleshliness That creates havoc everywhere And the only thing that can change that Is a divine mandate in the face of our rebellion Including threats as well as promises To get the attention of our scoundrelness A way made to renew a utterly broken relationship, a supernatural regeneration that literally spiritually remakes us with power from the inside, the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God itself to be like, uh, oh, no, we're going that way. No no no, 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 That way. A written revelation, an embodied incarnate revelation in Jesus Christ, a creation of the church, uh, and on and on. All of that, God pours out to us because we need all of it. Not just because we're so sinful, but because he's created us with such capacity. And when you create somebody with a divine image capacity and they fall into sin, that is a real big problem. And it is not going to be fixed with understanding more about brain chemistry and coming up with life hacks that we can blog to people so that we can get posts to nudie sites. It can only be done through the supernatural work of being transformed in the mind of Christ, being forgiven in justification, being filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, growing in virtue so we can live in the freedom of Christ, willingly pouring ourselves out self-sacrificially for the good of the dignity of our neighbor. That requires a deeper sense of dignity and a deeper solution. Lastly, an attack on human dignity, an attack on God, the gospel, and the kingdom. I'm not going to say much about this. That's not an advertisement for Christian verbal or otherwise militarism. It's, what, it's to say this. If somebody attacks you personally, and attacks your dignity. Now, it's probably they actually pricked your pride, and you shouldn't be getting upset anyway. But let's say they actually did attack your personal dignity. They've attacked the dignity of the Lord Jesus, okay? So have a little compassion for them. They apparently don't understand reality. The last thing you should do is confirm their misunderstanding with reality and treat them with indignity. I, I was part of a controversy the last couple of weeks that I won't get into to protect the innocent and guilty, and I made a decision that it was perfectly within my authority to do it. And it I firmly believe it was the right decision. I received the most very unmodest emails from Christians, okay? Which is cool, right? But I wanted to write back to them and tell them why they were wrong over email, okay? And it was only my absolute policy that I never respond to criticism over email that saved me, okay? And that's what—that's what we all do. That's that's so part of the flesh. Somebody attacks me. They attack my pride. I assume that means they attacked my dignity, and so I attack their dignity. That's great, Nick, right? is that great? Somebody misunderstands reality, and I help confirm them in it. That's good ministry right there, right? How many times have you done that? More than once? Maybe? It is the default reaction of all humans, and if you realize what's happening, if you really believe it, you can deal very differently with personal attacks, right? The second thing is that we contend for human dignity—the other two points are shorter— we contend for human dignity in the world, okay? So once we're grounded in the gospel of the dignity God gives humanity, outside of the body of Christ, in the culture in the world that we inhabit, that we're scattered among, we contend for human dignity. Okay? Now, there's a number of ways—here's some ways that we can do that. This is not an exhaustive list, right? One is we actually start treating everybody, whether they believe in it or not, like they are image bearers. No matter how they treat themselves, how they treat us, how they treat other people, we treat them like they bear the image of God. Which includes the moral seriousness of their sins Not just the affirmation of their worth Okay Secondly We need to, we need to learn how to explain human dignity to our neighbors People don't, do not understand human dignity They certainly don't understand how it relates to things like Acting with dignity Modesty Sexuality Liberty I could go on And this is one of the reasons why we have to grow in our faith and become substantive Christians. Because we have to be able to not just say, Jesus died for you. That doesn't make any sense to people in our culture. It's like saying, I saw a UFO. Like, they're not going to repent and believe. It's so alien to them. I'm sorry, that's kind of a bad pun. But it's so outside of how they think. It doesn't make any sense unless you can start with where they are explain a different version of reality that actually makes sense of things they couldn't have made sense of before and they were kind of confused about, and then within that reality begin to explain the significance and reality of Jesus, it feels like believing in unicorns to them. And so if we don't learn to actually articulate human dignity or something around the gospel that can help us go to the gospel, it's very hard to get anywhere with people. Does that make sense? And so when people say, only preach the gospel, don't get into that other stuff, I really disagree with that. I believe that most people begin to take the gospel seriously when you enter through another subject. The third is, is that we actually have to become examples of just unshakable virtue, which is swimming upstream. I get that. It, is also, it also stands out incredibly right now. Another is help liberate degradations of and offenses to indignity. Now, I do, I'm not talking politically, okay? Think about electricity for a second. You know, there's some things that conduct electricity really well. There's some things that conduct it kind of poorly, but they'll still conduct a little bit of electricity. And then there's some stuff that does not conduct electricity at all, right? Like marble, right? Okay. Institutions, laws, policies, structures— are very low conductors of human dignity. They can protect the flow of it in other ways. There's certain positive things that it can do. This is—I'm not talking about how big a government should be right now, but here's what I am telling you. Those kinds of things are very low conductors of human dignity. Human dignity, in its affirmation, conducts like a wire between two humans. Nothing else comes anywhere close in the conducting of the reception of the power of granting another their dignity, affirming it in them, and calling its meaning forth, than human interaction. There's no government agency that can take away the blessing you can be to an actual person in need. There is there's no government agency we can ever create that can replace human friendship. Think about it this way. Let's say I made a million dollars. Okay? I don't make a million dollars. But let's just say I, make, I made a million dollars. and But I never went home to my house. But all my money went straight into a bank account, and my wife just bought whatever she wanted for my kids. Right? And she bought them clothes, and she bought them little signs that says, Daddy loves you. And she would like print out, full-length pictures of me. And she would like buy things that smelled like me. And she would like— embroider—get little embroideries of things I'd said and hang them up in their bedroom and in the bathroom and stuff. And my kids would turn out to be wrecks, right? Probably. It's very likely. My, my daughters would all have these daddy wounds and they would date idiots and like I'd have lots of illegitimate grandchildren, right? That's, that's probably what would happen. Why? Because my kids need me— they need my touch. They, I, they, my, my kids need me to say, hey, you're gonna be fine. Like, I don't like the way you've been the last 10 minutes, but I believe you're gonna become a great adult. Um, hey, let's go do something together. I love you. Give daddy a hug. What story do you want for me to read you as I snuggle with you? As you get ready for bed, they need me. There's no substitute to the human conductivity that forms and allows people to embrace and live in their human dignity. Do you know that in the decade after the beginning of the New Deal where we created all these wonderful government programs to help people, personal philanthropy in America declined 90 percent? Do you know that? It's about where it was. It hasn't really recovered very much. Even in churches—and listen, you may be like, well, don't take shots at Democrats. Look, you can do the same way by busying your life with capitalistic adventures and just be too busy to help anybody. You can be like, oh, the government structures will take care of it. I don't have to—I don't have to have direct relationships, or I'm so busy doing all this stuff to make my life great and have a big house and stuff that I don't have time. Either way, As Christians, we allow ourselves to step back from the direct conductivity of love. Jesus never asked you to snap-tweet that you love humanity. He asked you to directly and personally get your neighbor's blood on you, putting them on your own donkey and taking them to help. That's a quote from Luke 10. It's not just a weird thing. Okay? And so, you just have to believe that. You have to believe that there is something in the nature of humanness that there can be no interruption, that the minute it's not human to human, the conductivity drops like 80%. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, Building wholesome families and covenantal friendships. There are institutions that are designed to uphold and protect human dignity. Why do you think marriage exists? Marriage exists to make a space to protect human dignity— It was invented to protect the dignity of children and women and men. If a man goes out to work and gives his labor for the exploitation of his income, he should be able to turn to something stable that he loves and has given himself to, to pour out the fruits of his labor for its good provision and protection. That's why a man can receive the fact that his life is supposed to be spent for the good of others Because when he turns to the people he is in contact with and relationship with he can give his life for them and not feel like he wishes he could go on more vacations and have more girlfriends. Well, he'll still think that. He just can deal with those thoughts Men and women give themselves to marriage in different ways. Women give way more upfront, Guys mainly gain, and then their health falls up, and women, women gain later, and then they give. It, it's not even in the course of human life. So you can't team up for 10 years and have a starter husband and then do whatever because you're all giving unevenly, and it can't even out until you're dead. That's why marriage has to be a 100% lifelong commitment. I know lots of secular people who are still married. They're like, look, if my wife didn't want to be with me, I just want her to leave. That's wrong. That is a fundamental breaking of human dignity. If somebody gives their life to you, you must give your life to them. That is part of the dignity of connectedness that God has created. And more than that, what is the the second most central right of any child? Right? The first is to survive the womb and out of the womb, just to survive. Okay? What's the second? Right? The second most fundamental right of a, hu- of a human child is to live in a single household direct union with both of their biological parents. There's a, if, if you just let the worldliness go for just a second, you just push those clouds up for just a second, and you just think, not in terms of how you want your life to go, but that if a human being is created, and if that... That being has moral rights. What would be the most obvious rights, that is, that the two beings that created it and brought it into the world would shepherd it in its need throughout the time of that need? Now listen, there are people in this room who've gotten abortions, who've been divorced, whose kids hate them. I understand that. Actually, that's not—that's not the question. One of the things we can't do is we can't sort of pussyfoot around things because because we have broken lives. We have to say, this is what we're aiming for. And if you didn't hit that, that's why Jesus died. That's why we have a redemptive community. That—how do i do don't—you just—you just try to get on another track heading basically in that direction. That's it. That's all we can do. But it doesn't work if you say, I'm not going to that station. It doesn't work. And so we have to recognize that some of these institutions that the world has no use for—they think it's idiotic. Monogamy is crazy. Yeah, it is crazy It is From a perspective of do whatever you want And don't wear the, ba- the backpack of being a prince And embodying the dignity of your humanity every second If you want to run and be a pauper So you can run around and kick cats and do whatever you want That makes perfect sense But if you are, believe you're created to embody the dignity of the gospel and of Christ himself To be an image-bearing human The world looks really different, and in a world where human dignity is broken and torn apart, the idea that God would create institutions or arrangements to protect dignity in a world that tears it apart so easily, like a family, wouldn't seem strange to us at all, even if it costs us greatly, right? And then last, speaking up for fighting for the vulnerable and the marginalized. Christians do need to use their voice publicly and in organization for broad indignities. Do you know the, the difference—what was the difference between Tulsa and Charlotte last week? Charlotte had riots. Tulsa didn't. What was the difference? Right? If you're barely paying attention to news, it would be simply this. The police department put out the video in Tulsa, so people didn't riot. In Charlotte, they did not so people did riot. That's not the reason. That's not the reason. Tulsa was about to blow up, but the black and white clergy of that city came out and shepherded the protesting. And um, the secular news source that reported it was interviewing people who were not Christians, and they, it said the people of the community credited the clergy for coming out and focusing and keeping the protests peaceful until the video was released. Because if you're an authority, and the people protesting you are, are doing it in an orderly way, right? They are living in the constraints of the dignity of us living together while advocating for what they're trying to advocate for. That is exactly what they're supposed to be doing, right? Advocating with dignity towards other people stating their case, right? And so if you're an authority, what do you need to do, right? You need to respond to that by doing what you can to relate to them while embodying the authority you're supposed to have to. In this case means embracing a level of accountability and releasing a video, right? If you're in another situation where people are going buck nuts crazy and saying, if you don't do this, we're gonna do this, what do you—how do you respond to people who say, if you don't do what I tell you, I'm gonna do something, right? You—you have to resist that. You don't have a choice. You have to say no. Because civilization—we can't proceed in human dignity on this basis. I have to say no. Because you can't have a society that way, right? And so that, Charlotte, turned into a huge mess. And the difference was not the videos. The difference was that the church showed up in Tulsa and created an environment in which something good could happen. In fact, that's that's honestly always been true of the civil rights movements in America. The church showed up. It was non-revolutionary, but revolutionary things happened. When the church has not showed up, revolutionary things happened, and everything stayed the same. So we have to speak up. But listen, we have to speak up responsibly because everybody is trying to capture your voice. Everyone. The political parties, the news medias, everybody's trying to capture your voice. And it's in a world where you can't know everything, right? There's just too much information out there. So um, the best advice that I can give us is this. Over time, you have to slowly pick out individuals that you believe are trustworthy in different fields. So, for example, in relationship to poverty and underclass, Theodore Dalrymple is somebody that I really trust. He's a British scholar. In the realm of public ethics— Russell Moore, this is one of the reasons we're reading his book. I think he's—I he, mean, both, both the presidential candidates hate him. Like, I mean, he's I mean, he just clearly just not captured by the parties. And he's like, look, this is what it looks like to be a Christian. And he's, he's been very virtuous. And so here's the thing. When you pick somebody out, the, what you have to look for is virtue. Not words, not demagoguing, not that they believe be, be what you already believe, but somebody who is willing to get lambasted— virtuously and that believes in the truth more than they believe in their truth. And you have to look for those people and try to find them and try to see who is, who is truthful and virtuous, who is sometimes attacked by their own people because they are willing to really listen to the arguments and they're, they're actually willing to dig a little deeper to find the facts and they're not gonna just go along with whatever their group normally would say And that's who you have to look for Because listen, every, guys, everything we believe, just about almost everything, we just believe somebody That's the reality of a, of a, of a, of a information exploded world Everything you believe, you believe, you believed your professor They told you they'd drive in a lab, but you didn't drive in the lab, you believed them when the people tell you on the news, they show you a picture, and then they interpret it for you, and then we just believe them. That's all we're ever doing. But shrewd people pay a lot of attention to who they're believing. And people who talk, whether it's me or small group something, especially in the church, we have to try to be really, really careful. To make sure that we're not flippant or stupid or we just say stuff we don't know anything about, or we, we have to try to stay on course. That's true parents. If you want your kids to listen to you, you, they have to see more interest in truth and virtue in you than that you are just part of a party or group or subgroup or whatever. That make sense? And l- lastly and quickly, um, we need to embody human dignity in the church. You see, when we go and scatter into the world, um, we enter into a place where we can't control the environment. It's not our environment. We are exiles in somebody else's environment, okay? The world is going to be worldly, and we enter in like a small thing. Like the Bible says, kind of like you have a big ball of dough when you're making bread, and you put a little bit of yeast in it. You know how much yeast you put in dough? How many people could cook bread, right? It's not much, right? 1% or 2% of the total weight. It's not much, right? And and you—but when you need it through the whole thing, it actually makes a significant difference, right? And Jesus says the kingdom of God is like that in the world, that we go out there and we live as these people we just talked about, and it's like leaven. It's not a, a high percentage of the total population, but it's the kind of thing entering in that actually produces something really significant in terms of change, right? Salt and light. But you see, when we're here, we've got nobody to blame but ourselves. When we're here, we don't have to live by their values. When we're here, we, we don't have to be captured by their assumptions. We don't have to go by their policies. We don't have to treat people on the basis of their rules. We, we shouldn't anyway, but we, we don't have to. There's, there's nothing making it so we can't be beautiful together. There's nothing stopping us from the conductivity of relationship. There's nothing that's keeping us from looking like Christ together. And so this is the only place, besides the family, and every once in a while you can have a Christian, like, sort of micro-community, but this is the only macro-community where we can embody the dignity of the kingdom so that people can come and see a different country, where they can walk through the doors, or they can enter your small group, or walk into your apartment that you share with, like, three other Christian roommates, and they literally feel like they have walked into a different reality. But in order for that to happen, kingdom dignity and authority— ha- our kingdom dignity has to have authority among us. We can't—we can't act out like, like they do out there. We can't pretend that, like, whatever's different about us is what makes us special. We, we can't act like that the Bible doesn't govern us. When the Bible says, you have to forgive, you don't get to be like, yeah, but. If they repent, we forgive. <laughs> it's the kingdom. That's it. We're here to serve others. That's it. Like that, there's no like, well, but. No. Right? The, the values of the kingdom have to govern us, right? Part of that is just our relationships, our community. This isn't another thing to do. It's just loving the people who are around you. Right? I'm trying to talk about human dignity in a way that isn't like, hey, you've got to do five more things. That's not the point. The point is not that you have to do five more things so that you can check off human dignity. Human dignity is the fabric of everything. That's what I'm trying to show you. That the fabric of the kingdom is is the God's eye view of the horizontal earthly fabric of his meaning put in everything. It is everywhere, in everything, at every moment. You will have 10 to 160 opportunities to embrace human dignity between your chair and the door. I know if you're an introvert, that's terrifying, but just take one of them. Just It just starts with just basic—listen, if you want to end racism, that is great. Okay, listen. That's great. Step one on ending racism. Be nice to the person sitting next to you right now. Okay? Not a hypothetical race, but an actual human of whatever race, gender, age, blah, 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 blah. The one right there that you bump into. Love that person. Treat that person with dignity. Become a person of dignity that extends dignity. And then that's— That's the push-ups you need before you're going to do the work of ending whatever. Sex trafficking, racism, idiotic political policy—doesn't matter. You understand? Third is ministering dignity to indignity. Human life under the curse is full of indignities. Just advanced age has its own indignities. Solomon said, you know, the the grinders fall out, and the eyes dim, and the— He called it—he said, you know, he's like, uh, Remember God in the days of your youth before the evil days come, meaning getting old, right? Being a little kid has its own indignities, right? There there are people with with, um, chronic illnesses that aren't fatal, that are in pain all the time. There's people among us who are physically and mentally disabled. There are people who are from walks of life or backgrounds that are— They just feel constantly under the weight of being treated with indignity, and that is an opportunity for us to show how much we value dignity. It's kind of like glorifying God and praising God when you're suffering. When all of the earthly goodies are gone, and all there is is the, the sheer worth of God by himself. And when you walk in and you go, Jesus is great. Jesus is great. I have nothing. That is so much more God's glorifying, so much more displaying of our value of God himself than any other time that we praise God. Similarly, whenever dignity is crushed, whenever people suffer under indignities, and we come in and we help bear that load, that is always more glorifying to God in embracing the reality of human dignity than any other time we're just nice to people. And so when people come one Saturday a month and they put on revive, where we tell the whole city If you have a profoundly physically or mentally disabled child, bring them and all of their siblings here, and we will care for them for a morning. You go do whatever you want to do. Just relax. And almost everybody that brings their kids aren't Christians. And I've seen the families that come to that. Most of them are very busy, and most of them bring their kids because they don't just want to participate in ministering to the dignities of others. They see it as a perfect example to teach their kids about human dignity. You love a kid for three hours when you have to change his diaper twice, and he's mumbling inanities and tries to hit you nine times, and you're going to learn something about loving people who have nothing to offer you. Now, I'm not saying that we should all be part of Revive. We don't need that many people. What I'm saying is that everywhere all around us in every situation, you will run into indignities, people who are hurting, people who are crushed. And when you bear up under what's crushing them and help them, it means something. And most, listen, you guys, the world ignores that. I remember I was a Christian for probably 20 years, walked through the church I pastored, never saw disabled people, never even saw them. And then I had one. <laughs> I see them everywhere. And it wasn't that there was a nuclear explosion that created a bunch of disabled kids in mine. They were always there. I just didn't see them, and I had no compassion for their parents. And, and now I do because i dealt with it. But we, we don't have to suffer all things to empathize with more things. We could just believe Jesus, right? Second to last is we have to, we have to spread the dignifying message. If our dignity comes from Jesus, from God in creation, through our divine purpose, that we are the inheritance that he's giving himself, don't you see that nobody can fully embrace and live in their dignity without Jesus? You can always live in a certain amount of dignity, and everybody has dignity, and people can understand it imperfectly and live in it partly. I'm not saying nobody lives in dignity if they don't believe in Jesus, but you cannot fully understand it without Jesus. Not according to the Bible, and therefore we always have to be a people taking the message in evangelism and in global missions to all peoples because it is the dignifying message. And lastly, is using the disciplines of spiritual renewal and memory. That is, all the stuff we do at church We do these things so that we can become the kind of spiritually substantive people who really have the mind of Christ, who really walk in step with the Spirit, who are full of virtue so that we can live in all the freedom of Christ, and who live self-sacrificially for the good of others out of love. That doesn't just happen. It happens through processes that we enter into by faith with other people that change us. And one of the reasons Jesus does that is because of human dignity. You can't become a loving person by just making an analytical decision in your head while you're driving. It takes these practices, right? Why do we get baptized, right? Everybody's initiated the same. You can take a CEO, and you can take a really smelly homeless guy who hasn't taken his medication, and you can dump them both in the same thing at the same time because they both come to Jesus exactly the same way. They're both just as forgiven when they come out. They're both both just as much the gifts Jesus is giving himself forever. It's baptism. That's why we do it. Why do we have potlucks? Right? That's a biblical one, right? Well, remember, communion in the Bible was a love feast. In 1 Corinthians 11, when, when, G- when Paul says, the way you do this is crazy, he wasn't saying you weren't eating the cracker right. The church used to come together, have a whole meal with each other, where everybody sat with each other and talked with each other. It didn't, it didn't matter if you were like a Roman centurion or you were like a little scoundrel slave guy that like didn't talk right and had a scar all the way down his neck. Didn't matter. Old woman sits next to a guy in bronze armor. Doesn't—everybody eats— Everybody enjoys each other's presence. Everybody recognizes that it's a family meal, and everybody takes communion together. Right? Right? At, at our potlucks, we don't—you don't bring ribs and then get in the front of the line so you can get them all. Right? We, we, we bring as a gift to the people of God. Right? We, we cook something. We try to win. Right? You, you try to make something that, like, everybody's going to want more of, and then go late enough in line that you don't get any. That's, that's the game we're playing. You want to win the game? That's the game we're playing. Make something everybody wants that's a, that's a gift, and then you eat three pieces of bread because there's no food left. Communion. Bible study. Right? How do we become the people if we don't know this, if we don't, if we don't eat the word until it tastes like honey in our lips? How do we become the people of God if we're so depressed under our financial debts that we're more oppressed and enslaved by our passions and our desires, our pleasures, and the security we long for? Because we can't—and then we can't be eternal investors, right? Go to financial peace. Go to the Bible study class that's coming up. If you haven't been baptized, go to the library after church and talk with somebody about getting baptized. If you don't go to a, a, a class, I mean, go to a class. If you don't go to a small group where we discuss what, we're, what does what we're talking about matter for our life, go to one. If you're young and you don't go to youth group, go to youth group. Send your kids to children's. We do these things together so we can actually be formed into the people so that we can have the community of beauty embodying it together, and then we can contend for it in the world. But it only happens if we're absolutely grounded in the foundation of human dignity in God and in the gospel. Only then will we see that Jesus is the perfect embodiment of human dignity in the midst of the worst human dignity. Only then will we get beyond just wanting to receive dignity from him and realize that he wants to Make us the kind of people that can embody the human dignity we were created for. And that's the only time we'll become so gospel-centered that we'll actually go out and contend for and embody the gospel.